The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll turn your scriptures, please, to Matthew chapter 25, sorry, 24. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 29, reading through to verse 51. You'll find that on page 830 of your Pew Bible. Matthew 24, verse 29. This is the Word of God. Let's give our attention to it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will, be, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. (coughs) 
Lord, as we come to this portion of your word, we feel humbled. We feel our weakness in every respect. And we know we absolutely rely upon you now for your word. And so we come with complete dependence upon you, our great God. Be merciful to us. Make clear now your will and your ways. And make clear the way we ought to live. And may our faith be in the coming Savior. May our trust be in him to the glory of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're working our way through Matthew 24, moving into Matthew 25 next week. This is known uh, in Matthew's Gospel as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, because it's a discourse, a conversation that happens. You can see verse 3 on the Mount of Olives. Our Lord has left the temple, goes out to the Mount of Olives. His disciples come to him privately, asking him, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? That's verse 3. And in answer to that question, what are the signs of your coming and the close of the age? Jesus gives us all this teaching we saw last week and that Pastor Rockin dealt with this week and probably the following few weeks. He speaks to them for a long time about the signs of the close of the age and the signs of his coming. And those signs, our Lord tells us, stretch back for us as far as 70 AD, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, they go all the way forward to the signs that will take place before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in answer to the simple question, what is the signs of the times, our Lord gives them a potted history of what life will be like for the people of God from his departure to his coming again, all the way from 35 AD, but with special reference to 70 AD, all the way to the time of the second coming. When we say 70 AD, we're thinking of that time when the Romans came in and ransacked Jerusalem. Uh, the suffering of the Jews at that time was so great that, as Pastor Rockin said last week, he couldn't even begin to read what the Romans did to the Jews. So appalling was that time. A great sign for that generation— a great sign, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of all of Jerusalem. But our Lord is going to employ that destruction, that date, 70 AD, not only for the benefit of that generation. 70 AD rather is a sign for us as we look back on history and as we look forward to Christ's second coming. It's a picture of the tribulation, the turmoil, the struggle that God's people will face until our Lord comes again. That's to say, as we go through this text and we say, well, that part of the text is about the second coming and that part is about 70 AD, we're making a mistake if we do that. The sign of 70 AD is a sign equally for us as it was for the Jews of the day. It's one of the signs our Lord gives that we can look back on and by it and by reading our own times, we can say this, the Lord will come again. The Lord most certainly will come again. And in light of that, 
in light of that fact that our Lord is going to come again from verse 44 to the end of the chapter, he applies that teaching. He says, I'm coming again, therefore be ready. Be found faithful, be found wise. The Lord is coming again. Let us live in accordance with that knowledge. And our Lord's going to teach that through four sections of our text. Verse 29, which I've I've termed the trumpet blast of the second coming. The trumpet blast of the second coming. Then verse 32, reading the signs of the times, 70 AD. Then verse 45, sorry, then verse 36 the unknown hour of the second coming, and then verse 45, be ready for Christ's return. I'll repeat those as we go through the text. The first thing our Lord is going to focus upon here in verse 29 is his second coming, a rather vivid description of what will happen at our Lord's second coming. Uh, Pastor Rockins mentioned it. I've mentioned it. There's much debate about Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Is it all about 70 AD, the destruction of the temple? Was it all fulfilled back then? Or does it have some reference to what is to come? Or is it a bit of both? Well, Pastor Rockin and I agree, and it's a miracle that we do agree, frankly. If you read the, the, the commentaries on Matthew 24 and 25, we agree it's about both. It's about 70 AD, and it's about the second coming. And 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, is a picture and a sign not just for that generation, but for us also. It's, if you will, the start of the signs of the close of the age. The destruction of the temple is actually pivotal to Jesus' whole teaching on his second coming. It was a sign, yes, for them who lived at the time. It's a sign also for us. Perhaps we could say the first of many signs to come. And that really fits into the pattern of Jesus' teaching in chapter 24. I want to step back from verse 29 for a minute and just consider how Jesus has taught about the second coming and 70 AD. Look at verse 3. As Pastor Ocken rightly said last week, that's to do with Jesus' second coming. So first of all, he deals with the second coming. Verse 15, if you're Bible has a title. It'll say something like the abomination of desolation. That's the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Then look at verse 29, the third part of his teaching. It's again the second coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 32 goes back to what? It goes to 70 AD. And then verse 36, again, the second coming. What do we have? We have a pattern that we see all the time in Scripture, a literary pattern of teaching. We have the second coming. We have 70 AD. We have the second coming, 70 AD, and the second coming taught in that order. And that teaches us, friends, that verse 29, where we pick up in our text today, is the very centerpiece of Jesus' teaching. The very centerpiece of Jesus' teaching on his second coming. Why is it the centerpiece? Because here we have a vivid description 
out of our Lord's mouth himself of what will happen at the second coming. And the first thing we note about the second coming is it will take take place after the days of tribulation, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. And it clearly has reference there to the start of the signs, 70 A.D., But the way this chapter works is it pictures the whole of church history from the first coming of our Lord to his second coming. That is to say, there is going to be a period of great tribulation, of trial and torment for the people of God. That is now. That is now. We don't believe that this teaches of a special period of tribulation, though things can get a lot worse for us as Christians. This is the period of tribulation. It's not then followed by the rapture, as our dispensationalist brethren say. No, this is a period from the first coming to the second coming of our Lord. And the first taste of it was what? 70 AD. As we've already said, 70 AD was the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. Such horrific things happened at that time. We can scarcely speak of them in this setting. If you want to know more about that, read Josephus, the historian, his account on the destruction of Jerusalem. But what do we see here? We see a time of terrible darkness. Yes, at 70 AD, but going throughout the whole of church history, we read after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Such will be the turmoil of life. It's teaching us there's going to be great trouble, great trouble. We are to expect wickedness of a profound order in this time. Great trial. An appalling experience for some of God's people now, and perhaps for more of us as time proceeds. The wickedness of the unbeliever will lead to great tribulation for the people of God. Even the powers of heaven, metaphorically speaking, speaking, we read, shall be shaken. That's how serious this period of tribulation will be. And then after that tribulation, what do we read? Verse 30, then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The unmistakable shall come forth the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sign of the Son of Man, many have speculated what it is. Some think it'll be a big cross in the sky. It's not going to be a big cross in the sky, trust me. It might be great light, or it might just be the coming of Christ himself. And as Pastor Rockin rightly said last week, this will be unmistakable. When Christ comes again, it will not be like his first coming. People won't be saying to you, come and see, I found the Christ. Everyone will know the Christ. Everyone will know that he's come. The trumpet blast shall be sounded. The whole world will unmistakably see Messiah coming again. Righteous and unrighteous alike shall know that Christ has returned. And there are those who are called in this text, verse 30, the tribes of the earth. 
I think that's the unrighteous. Why? Because at the coming of the Son of Man, what does it say? They will mourn. They will sorrow. Scripture is very clear. The coming of our Lord will be the great and terrible day of the Lord. There are many days of the Lord in Scripture, judgments which were were terrible, AD 70 is one of them, but they pale into comparison compared to the great coming of the day of the Lord. Those Jews that have rejected Messiah will on that day realize the terrible misjudgment that they've been involved in. And the Gentiles who neither love the Lord will also realize his great and extraordinary power that he has come in judgment. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 speaks to us of this very moment. And it's amazing how Revelation 6.12 picks up on the language of our text. Listen to it. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from uh, from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the judgment that's coming with the day of the Lord. Well do we read that in chapter 24, verse 30, they will mourn. Those who have not received Christ in this age, when he comes again, it will be too late. And then it will be a time of mourning for the unrighteous, but for the elect, verse 31, it'll be a time of great joy. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The trumpet blast that no person on the face of the earth will be able to mistake. It's, it's inevitable. Everyone will know the coming of Christ. Everyone will hear. Everyone will know. What an ingathering it will be on that great last day when Christ sends out his angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from every corner of the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue, God gathering in his people. It makes us ask the question, does it not, friends? Have we received the Messiah? Have we put our trust in this Christ? Not some nice, fanciful Jesus of our imaginations or the teaching of the world that's palatable to just about everyone. This is a Christ who comes with judgment for some and life everlasting for others. Receive him on his own terms or don't receive him at all. He's urging us this day through his word, receive me. Be gathered in on that final day. Be among the elect. 
by faith in the Savior. It's a call to repentance and to faith even this very day. And to aid us with that, Jesus teaches us about how to be ready for this moment, how to be ready for the coming of the Son. And he turns to the fig tree. He turns to the fig tree, our second point, reading the signs of the times. And I say this is principally about 70 AD, but remember 70 AD is a a sign also for us of Christ's second coming. He turns their attention to the fig tree and says, look, you know, you know how to read nature. You know, verse 32, as soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. When you see the leaves on the fig tree growing, you know that summer is coming. He says, verse 33, see also when you see all these things, not just 70 AD, but all the signs of which our Lord has spoken of, you know that he is near at the very gates. You know that Jesus is near at the very gates. And Jesus makes clear of what he's speaking there in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, our Lord must be referring to the events of 70 AD there. The generation will not die off before the great terrible sign, the sign for them and for us, the picture of what life is to be, takes place. 70 AD serving to them as a great reminder of what our Lord had taught them. But the destruction of Jerusalem, I say again, is a sign also to us, a sign of the terrors that are to come for those, to use the language of the text, who are not ready for the second coming. Jesus is saying to them, read the signs, read the times, know the times, know the age in which you live. There's a great caution that comes with that in a few moments, but he's saying to us, think about the end times. Think about the coming of our Lord. And I think there's a great implication for us as Christians, and I trust we're not Christians who, as some are, are desperate to find the hour, time, and date of our Lord's coming. I trust that's no one here, because we'll see that's wrong in a moment. But there is nonetheless a great implication for us as new covenant Christians. You know, we can look at the terrors of the age and the troubles of the world around us, and we can almost freeze with fear. I think, what if it gets worse with us? What if it gets worse for us? The fact is, it's very much worse for large portions of Christ's church throughout this world than it is for us right now. We can look at the times and the signs of the times with fear, or we can look upon them as evidences that Jesus is going to come again. Notice what he says, heaven and earth will pass away, verse 35, but my words will not pass away. We can be filled with fear at them, or we can simply take them as an evidence, Christ is coming again. And these signs, though they are filled with fear, though they are terrible, objectively speaking, serve a greater purpose for God and thus serve a greater purpose for the Christian. They tell us, friends, Jesus Christ is coming again. And make no mistake about that. 
It's going to happen. So when is the end? If, if Jesus is coming again and, and he wants to encourage us and warn us by this, when's it going to happen? That's the big question, is it not? Verse 36, the third point, the unknown hour of the second coming. It's very clear, is it not? Verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The timing of his second coming is quite simply unknown. We do not know it, plain and simple. And everyone who has attempted to predict the timing and the date of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, I say without hesitation, is a liar and a fool. Because Jesus tells us, I don't even know the hour, only the Father. Now, friends, if the Son of Man does not know the date and the hour and time of the second coming, how in the world are we supposed to know it? And it's a great proof of the falsehood of certain ministries and certain figures of our age and certain movements that they have attempted to demonstrate or prove the timing of Christ's coming. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, have predicted the end of the world no less than five times. It was going to be in 1878 then in 1881, then in 1914, then in 1918, then in 1925. They were wrong each time. And the fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, lists 190 documented predictions of the coming of Christ. 190 people or organizations, you can find a reference for each one of them, that's why I say it's documented, each of them saying that Christ is coming on a specific date. Guess what? All the dates have passed. They were all wrong. Should we be surprised? No. It's a fool's errand to engage in this kind of, of, of activity. It marks them out as false prophets. Jesus uses several illustrations to prove that this is the case. First of all, verse 37, he speaks of the days of Noah. He says they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. When Noah went into the ark, the flood came, we read, when they did not expect it and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. No one knew when the flood was coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, he says, two are in the field, one will be taken, one left. Look, they've gone out for a day's labor, a day's work, not expecting anything unusual to happen. One was taken, one was left. It's not about the rapture. It's about being gathered by the elect gathered. And on the back of that, Christ says, <coughs> verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then in verse 43, he gives another example. If the master had known at what time the thief would break into the house, he would have stayed up and foiled the theft. On the back of that, our Lord says, more application, verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
I think the point should be crystal clear to just about anyone who wants to read this text honestly. We don't know when Jesus is coming. And you cannot predict when Jesus is coming. And we have to say it's only those who are dissatisfied with Christ's words and dissatisfied with the authority and revelation of God that would seek to predict what God has said cannot be predicted. Equally, the point to us is this. Don't think that we should be just sat around waiting for the coming of Christ. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, so be ready for his coming. That's what our Lord has said unequivocally. Jesus is coming again. You don't know when, therefore be ready for his coming. The question is, how should we ready ourselves? How should we be found ready at his coming? And that's what our Lord teaches, fourthly, in verse 45. He said he's coming again. You don't know the hour, therefore be awake, be ready. Those are his two applications. Verse 45 to verse 51 is simply an application of his teaching thus far. Be ready for Christ's return. Well, how does our Lord describe this readiness? It's interesting how he describes it. He speaks about the character and the reward of those who are ready. And then he speaks about the character and the punishment of those who are not. And clearly, the readiness or unreadiness is ultimately measured by faith. Do they have faith in the Savior or do they not? But that's not the test, faith, that our Lord speaks of here, at least not overtly anyway. He doesn't say if you're of faith, you're saved. If you're not of faith, you will not be saved. That's not what he says. The two tests of readiness here are what? Faithfulness and wisdom. Who then, verse 45, is faithful and wise? Who then is faithful and wise servant? You see, being faithful is not the same as saying you have faith. You understand that? Being faithful is not the same as saying I have faith. Frankly, anyone can say they believe in Jesus, but do their lives show it? That's what's being spoken of here. Do their lives show it? Faithfulness is a marker of their conduct, not of what they say. Faith always produces fruits. If I can steal some of Pastor Ocken's uh, uh, material from tonight. If you look at the affirmation of faith in tonight's bulletin uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's of justification. Uh, we read faith. Thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Jesus doesn't say, if you say you have faith, you'll be ready. He says, if you are faithful, you are ready. If you are wise, you are ready. 
You see, the language he uses here is to ensure that we get the message. It's not sufficient to outwardly belong to the church. You must have the reality. You must have Christ. And then your life must show you have Christ in faithfulness. What does he mean here in verse 45? Faithfulness and wisdom. He puts a picture together of a master who sets a servant over a house. And the servant is faithful and wise. What does he do? He ensures that the people in the household have their food at the proper time. I think it's a picture, first of all, for the disciples. That's who he's speaking to. The apostles called to be the foundation of the church, Christ being the chief cornerstone, that they are to feed the flock of God faithfully and with wisdom. He is speaking a specific application to them. Be found faithful apostles. But by implication, our Lord speaks to all Christians. Whatever our callings are here this day, callings in the church of elders, deacons, members, callings in the home of husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, calling in society, employers, employees, citizens, friends, whether we're disciples, Whatever our calling might be, God is saying to us, behave and live faithfully every day. Be what you were created to be. Be what you've redeemed to be. Be what you have been called to be by God and his grace. Be faithful. Be wise. Know Christ. Know him truly and then live according to that reality. But there's another picture, isn't there? Verse 46, the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. There's no such thing as the second coming. My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And listen to this and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow! This is a description of hell. Being cut into pieces, put with the hypocrites. Not only those who have uh, overtly rejected the Christ, but those who say they accept the Christ, but never knew him, the hypocrites. It's a description here of what Scripture calls the second death. The second death, an unending death, an eternal state of decay and dying without end. That's their punishment. The righteous, however, have a blessed reward. Verse 46, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. God will set the servant over all God's possessions. Interesting language, isn't it? Consonant with what our Lord says elsewhere, uh, faithful in service, being set over ten cities. Revelation chapter 22, the the believer receives a crown of glory. And what will we do? We will reign and rule with him forever. 
What a remarkable thing that God should be so gracious to set us in glory that we might reign and rule with Christ forever. That's a staggering reward. You see here, our Lord is speaking of greater glories than we now possess. He's also speaking of greater responsibilities than we now possess. He's speaking of greater service than we now give and greater delight than we now experience. The reward is eternal life for those who will receive Christ and walk according to his commandments in faithfulness and wisdom. Friends, there's joy in this teaching. There's joy if we're found to be a faithful and wise servant. We might not be called to go to far-off lands, as some of us have been. We might not be called to lay down our life as a martyr, as some have been called. We're just called to be faithful where God puts you. In the duties and responsibilities, the location, the environment. You're simply called to be faithful. It's a fairly straightforward lesson, is it not? Be ready. Be ready. Be awake. Be faithful and wise. Each of us, according to our various callings, live well. Conduct yourself in the knowledge that Christ is most certainly coming again. And to that we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are most wonderful, most glorious, excellent in all your ways. And we are humbled by you and by your word. There is no God like you. We pray, Lord, as you have revealed yourself unto us this day, that you would be pleased, Father in heaven, to grant us that faith that walks before you and is blameless, that faith which reveals itself in faithfulness and in wise living, living obediently according to your commands. Give us that faith. Strengthen us, we pray, that we might be found ready at the coming of our Savior, and we might be to the praise of your glorious grace. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.